This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. My topic today is the topic of politics, the pulpit, and of course it is also uh, the pastor. What is the role of politics in the pulpit? As I've been thinking about this, I have my own convictions which may or may not be right, but I'm going to share them with you, and just so that you know, there are notes for this section. And I believe that these notes have not been given out. How many of you don't have notes? Well, that's the majority. Would some of you who still have some physical strength be able to take those notes and hand them out? Because the intention was that we make this as simple as possible so that you can follow what I have to say and you can take notes. So go ahead. You have your jokes. Go your way, okay? <laughs> I'm teasing you. All right, so does everybody have a copy of the notes? We live in two worlds, and our job as pastors, of course, is to, is to help people invest and prepare for the world to come. Before I even begin, I'm going to begin asking a very obvious question, and that is, is politics important? And the answer is yes, it's very important. Every once in a while I meet pastors and others who say this, politics isn't really important, it's not the important thing, it's the gospel and it's spiritual warfare. I understand what they're saying because I believe that it is spiritual warfare. But when it comes to politics, just ask the people in Nazi Germany during the Hitler era, whether or not politics is important. Go to North Korea and ask the people in North Korea, would you rather live in North Korea or South Korea? Because after all, politics isn't very important. Of course politics is important. It is very important, but it is not all important, of course, Ultimately, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we want to emphasize that, and that will become a part of what I have to say. But let's not think that politics is unimportant. Even here in the United States, we can see that some administrations do certain things that we may approve of, that we may disapprove of, that have long-term repercussions, because politics is very important. Now what I'd like to do is to talk about three different ways that pastors have viewed this issue of politics. First of all, there are those who are politically active. They're the ones who endorse political candidates. Now I have to say that as a pastor, I've never endorsed a political candidate, I've never endorsed a political party. And the reason for that is because when you endorse someone, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly all thrown in, and you don't want to hitch the cross of Christ to a political party or a politician. One day, somebody came to me at Moody Church and spent about an hour convincing me 
uh, trying to convince me to endorse a political candidate. They had a certain agenda in mind, and that was the purpose of the visit. When it was over, I told him why I wouldn't, and then he ended up agreeing with me because he mentioned someone who is very prominent across the United States, I'm not gonna mention his name, who endorsed a political candidate. And he said what happened is, number one, his candidate did win. Now, if the candidate lost, then of course, you're shown to be a paper tiger. So there's that possibility. But his candidate won, but he said that when this person went to Washington, he showed up in a prostitute's little black book. In other words, you never know who you are endorsing, whether or not he is going to be a good representative of the Christian faith or not. And so I don't think it's the pastor's responsibility to endorse a political candidate. Now, having said that, I think it's perfectly fine for a pastor to criticize someone who is in office. And if you listen to Alan Moeller's briefing, the briefing, which you should do every single morning, you'll discover that Moeller, who's going to be speaking to us later, obviously often criticizes the Biden administration for ABCD. So it's fine to do that. I mean, let me put it to you this way. I've written a book on Hitler, as you know, actually two, and you can read one without reading the other. But would it have, would a pastor in Germany have been faithful to his calling if he had not been critical of the leadership in Nazi Germany? I don't think so, because after all, things were happening that you could not approve of, and they were things that were political. But I think that in America, the idea of endorsing a political candidate really works against us. Now, I do associate with people who have endorsed political candidates, and I could name some of those, but I disagree with them. So there's that one that are politically active, and they are the endorsers. And then there are those who are pietistic. And again, I refer to Germany. This was a group of uh, of uh, pietists who really wanted to separate from the world, to separate from politics, and have their own little enclaves. I'm exaggerating it a little bit, but this is a true story that I tell in both books, I think, about a train going past this little church, and when the train came, and the Germans knew when it would come, because after all, German trains always run in time, they made sure that they were singing because they didn't want to hear this train rumble past them full of Jews on their way to a concentration camp. So let's just keep our little enclave to ourselves. Now, Rebecca and I have people who are Mennonites, and um, Mennonites don't vote. They live in their little groups, and, you know, the world is going to hell around them, but they are uninvolved politically. And oftentimes they want to just be a, um, I don't know what word comes to mind, but to live in that enclave. Let, let's talk about the Amish. The Amish, and you know, we know some Hutterites. My brother often goes to them because he gives them vegetables and so forth, which my brother then distributes to refugees from other countries. It's a great ministry. But they live in their little enclave they grow their own food, they grow their own vegetables, 
and they have their own cows, and they are not involved in any way in the world. By the way, the Amish now are involved with politics. They have to be because the sheriff visited an Amish farmer because he's selling uh, cucumbers and vegetables and eggs to other farmers. And of course, it's bypassing the whole system. The argument on the other side is, well, you know, all of his products aren't being passed by the standards of the, uh, the whatever it's called, in terms of the governmental agency. The other thing that bothers them is when you sell directly and bypass stores and so forth, you get a better deal, and that is troubling because, after all, you should be paying taxes and all the other things. So, in a sense, even they cannot avoid politics. There's a third view, and that's the view that I believe in. You can call it um, moving ahead and being involved redemptively, redemptively in the controlling realities of the culture. By the way, your notes refer to Niemöller. What happened is, during the Hitler era, Niemöller shook hands with Hitler. Hitler gathered the pastors together and chewed them out because the church wasn't submitting to him as quickly as he thought it would, and so he let him have it. And he said, all that I want is peace. All that I want is peace. That's all that I want. And then he said, you pastors take care of the church. I will take care of the German people. And Niemöller was the last to shake hands with Hitler, choosing his words very carefully. He said, you said that you'd take care of the German people. We would take care of the church. But God also has given us a responsibility to the German people, and that cannot be taken away from us. So that framed the whole thing. Of course, Niemöller got into trouble because of that. He and Bonhoeffer and some others had the Pastors' Emergency League, and the hundreds of people resigned and took their names off of that because they felt Hitler should not have been confronted directly and all those things. But the question still remains, what is our obligation to the people beyond the church? What is our obligation in politics? Redemptive involvement. That's the phrase I think that I believe in. Redemptive involvement so that we lead with the gospel. We lead with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you lead with the gospel, you immediately recognize that there are substitutes for the gospel, which many people fall into, and I have several of them listed here. And then what we're going to do is to talk about issues which are deemed political today, which I think we as pastors have the responsibility to speak to. So that's where we are going. First of all, let me say that there are some churches that live in a cocoon. The controlling realities of the culture are faced by members of the congregation every single day. Every Monday they go to work and they bump up with cultural issues having to face it. But the church is isolated from the culture. That's why I say here, and you'll notice that it says under point number four, there are three kinds of churches. Compliant. Compliant churches are churches that give the culture whatever it wants. Whatever the culture wants, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether or not it's affirming transgenderism, whatever the culture wants, we give. 
Then there are also churches which are compliant, well, compliant, complacent, and they are opposed to what's happening in the culture, but they would never speak against it. Because after all, they want to be known as nice people. They don't want any stumbling blocks to the gospel. And they think that if we speak about cultural issues, we'll create stumbling blocks, and therefore we avoid it. And there are some churches that are just like that, where it's the same thing over and over again, where there seems to be no awareness at all of the collapsing culture. There's a friend of mine in Germany who said that uh, he was at a handbell choir one time, concert, and you know how handbells work, and the music was very beautiful, but suddenly somebody who was inebriated went up, yanked the cloth away uh, on the table, upset all the bells, but the music continued. You know, you've heard of lip sync, this was handbell sync. <laughs> and that's the way some churches are. The same thing over and over again. And I want to ask you this, Pastor. What if God wanted to do something in your churches, in your church, that wasn't listed in the bulletin? Would he have the freedom to do that, or are you just locked in to the same old routine Sunday after Sunday? And then there are courageous churches. That's the third category. That is... Churches that say we have to be culturally involved, we're involved in our community, but also we have to speak about issues which impinge upon politics. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. And uh, I have to put my wristwatch here because my eyesight is not as good as it used to be. And uh, there are reasons for that. Maybe one is I'm getting older, although that should not hinder too much. Now let's look at some substitutes for the gospel that are sometimes given. Social justice. Uh, what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice? Justice for the Christian is not a, a choice really. If you are saved and you're converted, you have a responsibility of working towards justice. The issue is not, should we be involved in justice? We should be involved in justice. The issue is, what kind of justice are we involved in? When you study social justice, you discover that it involves a whole constellation of issues. And those things may have to do with equality in marriage, which is same-sex marriage. It may be reproductive rights, which means abortion. It has to do with some racial issues which we would not agree with and which work contrary to us rather than for us in establishing relationships. So, you know, but there are some pastors who begin to preach about social justice taking in a lot of the issues of the culture. Here's an important verse. I think that this is Isaiah 59 about verse 12, where it says this, Righteousness stands afar off, and justice is not allowed to enter, because truth has stumbled in the public square. If you don't have biblical truth, you don't have biblical justice. Biblical justice, of course, means that we work toward equal opportunity, we help the poor, we do all that we can 
But at the same time, we don't buy into all of the cultural issues. Here is the bottom line. Social justice, however, at its best is not the gospel because the gospel is not what we can do for Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us, so we need to make that distinction. But social justice is often preached. Another error that some pastors fall into is permissive grace, permissive grace. You know, uh, here's the way permissive grace goes. It takes unconditional love, preaches unconditional love, and it interprets it as unconditional acceptance of my lifestyle. Well, unconditional love is one thing, can be debated, but let's suppose that it is true across the board. Unconditional love, but that doesn't mean unconditional acceptance of my lifestyle. So you have pastors who in effect preach this, though they would not say it quite this clearly. I sin, God forgives, so we have a great relationship. It's just perfect because I enjoy sinning, he enjoys forgiving, and so we move on. And I have to say here that regarding permissive grace, it is so important for us to understand like one permissive grace preacher said, there's no way God could judge America or that America could be under judgment because after all, all the judgment of God was taken out on the cross. Well, yeah, it was taken out on the cross for believers, but that doesn't mean that God can't judge America. As a matter of fact, I think we are being judged. So. What you need to do is to balance grace and law and obedience. We must recognize that. Another uh, thing that some pastors get into is mysticism, where they, excuse me, begin to imbibe some of the ideas of the culture. I know that you wouldn't go this far and that you all have enough discernment to see this, but Richard Rohr is a Catholic who's written many books I read one of his books on the Trinity. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Trinity. It has to do with a mystical, universal understanding of God. And according to him, it's very clear that there can be no judgment in God at all, and everybody has God within them. And so what we need to do is to move on and get beyond all of this doctrine stuff and embrace everyone. We want a God that is as tolerant and as inclusive as we are. Now, the reason I mention Richard Rohr is because his publisher says the largest demographic that reads Richard Rohr are young evangelicals who are deconstructing from the faith. If you were here yesterday when I preached in the church uh, service, preached twice, I preached on deconstruction, that there are so many young people who say, I'm deconstructing from the faith. Another thing is sexual compromises because of a misunderstanding of love. Doesn't love make us accept same-sex marriage? People don't realize, and you pastors have to preach, that love can be evil. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't stop loving. 
They just started to love the wrong things. Lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of self. That's what they began to emphasize. And you and I must recognize that herein is love that you keep my commandments. So love for God and love for his word, love is defined for us in scripture. And then there are those pastors who preach only the positive doctrines Always, you know, God wants, or prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, by the way, cuts out, cuts out generosity. What it says is, if you give to God, you'll get back again. So you can be very selfish and respond to the prosperity gospel. Instead of saying, God, I'm willing to give this to you, even though it may diminish my savings and I might have to make some changes because I love you so much, it undercuts all that and says, no, 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 you give. If you give $1,000 to us, God is going to bless you and he's going to pay your mortgage and you're going to get $1,000. That's such a wrong gospel, but I know that you wouldn't uh, fall for that. But you might fall for the next thing, preach only the positive aspects of Christianity. There are many sermons that are completely biblical, but the pastor's preaching is unbalanced. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever preached a whole sermon, pastor, on the doctrine of hell? I was at Moody Church for 36 years, and I did it only twice. You can scarcely sleep the night before, because when you begin to think, of Revelation 20 and the judgments and the eternal fire. It is just beyond what the human mind can get. But it's in the Bible. You ought to preach that once in a while. What you need to do is to preach the whole counsel of God. Now, I appreciate the amen because, you know, in some states like Illinois, I don't think it's legal to say amen. <laughs> now, Here's what I want to say. I believe that if you're a faithful pastor, you cannot avoid the realities of the culture, which are called political. So without endorsing a candidate, you have to preach in such a way that you're preaching issues which the culture may deem to be political, but you preach it because it is biblical. I thought maybe I'd hear another amen, but that's asking for too much. Number one, what do you preach about? Preach about the moral issues. Same-sex marriage, transgenderism. Now, if you were here prior to this seminar, you heard Dr. Paul Copan preach about homosexuality, reminding us that we should not just be condemning, because if all that you do is condemn people, uh, you'll just turn them away. When um, Massachusetts adopted same-sex marriage many years ago, I preached two sermons about it at Moody Church. But I wanted to preach with such brokenness and humility, and I remember even those who struggled with same-sex attraction said to me later, we don't agree with you, but we appreciate the the attitude and the heart that you portrayed because we have to show the love of Christ and whoever comes to me Jesus says he who comes to me 
will never thirst and so forth, but he says uh, that, you know, the verse of scripture, my goodness, it's not coming to me, but you know what it is. Already it's come to mind. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart. Jesus needs to be presented. I was at a conference one time where a man was just railing against homosexuality. And I have to say that I walked out. I could not take it. I thought, if there was someone here struggling with homosexuality and all that they got was condemnation, it would only drive them further into that lifestyle. So it's a combination of love, but should you be helping your people think through issues regarding transgenderism? Obviously. Now, in your backpack or the... Uh, the bag that you've got full of books. And by the way, this church is so incredibly generous. Every year, they give pastors a bag of books. You'll find a book entitled No Reason to Hide. And in that book, I try to think through how to respond to this culture and transgenderism. And uh, even as I conclude the conference on Wednesday, I'll be the last speaker after lunch, I want to talk about that and help parents think through, what do you say to a child who says, you know, mom and dad, I think I'm trans. I think it's the responsibility of a church to help parents think through such issues. And so that's one thing you have to preach about, but today it's very politicized, obviously. Secondly, you have educational help, parents. Now, how do you preach against parents without taking on, you know, the whole school system? Some of you may be hesitant to do that. The answer is you preach on the responsibility of parents to take control of their kids' education. I'm very critical of the public school system, both in the book that you received and the one, We Will Not Be Silenced, that some of you are familiar with. And I received a letter from somebody really critical of me saying, we still have a public school which is mainly run by Christians and, and you know, we still uphold all of the truth. And I thought, well, yeah, thank God, but yours is an anomaly. That's not the kind of thing that we have in the state of Illinois. And without stirring up controversy, I have to say this, that the state of public education is so bad, so pornographic, so leftist, that you as a parent need to find an alternate way to educate your children, maybe to send them to a, a, a school, that uh, a Christian school, maybe there are homeschooling consortiums that make homeschooling easier than it used to be. You have to do something. You cannot throw your children to the wolves. And I could speak to that in some detail again, referencing Hitler, who said in effect that um, that he who controls the youth controls the future. And what he said is, you parents take care of the child's clothes and you feed them, but the soul of the child will belong to the Reich. You parents, you clothe the child, you feed the child, but its soul belongs to social media. And the cell phone in your teenager's hand will do more to inform his or her worldview than an hour of church or an hour of Bible study. So, you preach about that. You preach about 
I remember preaching six sermons on the whole business of technology and sexual purity in the midst of a culture that is just awash with every kind of movie and sexual uh, perversion imaginable. Racial issues. What we have to show is that Christianity has a better way than uh, critical race theory. Now, I, I deal with that extensively in the book, uh, Will Not Be Silenced, though also the one that you're getting. Critical race theory, in a single sentence, keeps tearing apart what Jesus died to bring together. At the Moody Church, where it was my privilege to serve on any Sunday morning, and we did a couple of surveys to verify this, we had more than 70 different countries of origin represented, and we rejoiced in that because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 5 that the day is coming when around the throne there are going to be people from every tongue and nation. It is going to be a multi-ethnic, transnational community of people. And what does the Bible say about ethnicities? Colossians chapter 3 verse 11. The Apostle Paul says that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, barbarian, Scythian, these marauders that were going throughout the country stealing what wasn't theirs. But in Christ, we are all one. Now, let's think about that. Did the Jews and Greeks have their differences? Absolutely. Did the Jews become Greeks or the Greeks become Jews? No, they maintained their ethnicity, but there was a transcendent unity that was brought together in Christ, and our churches should be a place where we work toward that kind of unity rather than keep tearing against it with critical race theory. Critical race theory encourages, in effect, us shouting at one another across racial fences by blaming, by shaming, and it really doesn't get us anywhere. And when, and when victimology becomes your source of power, and you will not give it up no matter what. So we have to be willing to speak about this, but from a Christian standpoint, with the intention of saying, look, we need to work toward unity, and then we have to ask this question, how do we move forward together to make things better, to deal with issues that are literally uh, and, uh, you know, cultural uh, issues of justice and what all. What can we do together? But we can't do it as long as we continue to be uh, divided, intentionally divided by critical race theory. Explain that to your congregations with a view toward unity rather than tearing everything else apart. I uh, attended a seminar by a young black pastor entitled, Why Is It So Difficult to Talk About Race? It was very good, very freeing. And one of the things he said is we may not agree on everything, actually. We all come from different backgrounds, different perspectives. But that should not stop us from trying to understand, from working together to make things better. All right? Freedom of speech. You know, you talk about, old oh, politics doesn't matter. Our president signed a decree that said that uh, transgenderism 
is the rule of the day and that transgenders must have the same rights as others. So the School of the Ozarks in Missouri filed a lawsuit against the federal government because the federal government was beginning to say that trans students should be in the same dormitories as those that are born cisgender, namely uh, with their biological background and their bodies. As a, to be clear, let's suppose you sent your daughter to this Christian school and her roommate assigned to her was born Bert, but Bert claims that he's actually Bertha and he needs the same, the same rights after all. Do you see the kind of dilemma we're in? And actually, I'm not giving you the worst news. It's a lot worse than that. But I'm simply saying, help people to think through what our response to these matters should really be. All right. The responsibility that people have toward government. I'm sorry, to, I, I keep using Nazi Germany, but here's the thing. You know the confessing church that Bonhoeffer was a part of, that was begun with Karl Barth and Niemöller became a part of? They had their own conventions. They had their own synods. So you have the German Christians who went along with Hitler, that's what they were called, and you have the confessing church which says we can't be a part of Hitler's regime and so forth, and we have to move along. In their last synod, Hitler, Hitler's henchmen said, every pastor in Germany should swear personal allegiance to Hitler. All of his SS troops and others had already done that, but they said every pastor should. Now here they meet as a synod, and they divide over Romans 13. You know, give deference to all the authorities that God has put in charge because you know, he has put them in charge and they are ministers of God and stuff. And they said, well, we can't resolve Romans 13, so every pastor do whatever he thinks is right. Hitler loved it. All that he had to do is round up the pastors who wouldn't swear personal allegiance. The church broke apart at that point, And that was the end of the confessing church because they could not agree on this. Now, this is a huge topic, but I want to tell you this, that if... If you think that the government is absolute, then the government is taking the place of God. Oh, I was hoping for an amen, but it's all right. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. When Paul said that in Romans 13, that's hugely debated, I think that what he was saying is that the powers that be here says, he says that they are ordained for your good, and if you do good, you don't have to worry about them. If you do bad, they bear not the sword in vain. Paul was assuming here that this was a good government. I know he was writing when Nero was uh, under control, controlling the country. So that's a huge passage. But what you need to do is to exegete it and to ask yourself the question, what did Paul mean? Did he mean that government should always be absolute? I don't think so. And so what we have to do is to distinguish between that. Now, 
your churches are divided enough already. Don't divide over the vaccine. I respect everybody who has been vaxxed. That's probably most of you. I also respect those who haven't been vaxxed. And let's not divide over that. You know, churches have split over, should we have been open during the COVID crisis? And one pastor told me they decided that they would close. All half the congregation was mad. You're submitting to the state. The other half of the congregation was glad, I guess. And then when they opened, the other half said, so you really don't care about your people. You pastors, you have a real task ahead of you. So don't divide over non-biblical issues over which there could be matters of conscience. But remember this, you do not have absolute obedience to the government, and we have illustrations in the scripture, of course, Daniel praying and the king issuing his decree and all that. So please keep that in mind. But preach on that. Now, Many of you say, well, I preach expository messages and we're going through the book of uh, Nehemiah and I'm not finding any of these issues in Nehemiah. Oh, I don't want to open a can of worms, but I do fly back to Chicago on Wednesday. Great big huge jets come over our condo. In fact, one day I was just walking from the dining room to the bedroom and a flight attendant told me to sit down. <laughs> I appreciate expository preach preaching, but there are times when you have to stop that and talk about the controlling realities of the culture. Now, this may be debated Amen. and maybe you say that I'm wrong here, but I often at Moody Church preach series of messages where every message was an expository message but it was thematic. For example, I preached eight or ten messages on how to live for the glory of God. So you take these various things. I preached on uh, issues of the family, where you take that, where you don't have just, uh, uh, you know, you don't have one book of the Bible dedicated to the family. Just like you don't have one book of the Bible dedicated to prophecy. Prophecy is scattered throughout the scriptures, and so there are times when you just can't ignore it. I remember during the time when you had the Da Vinci Code. I preached on the Da Vinci Code and showed why it was unbiblical and stuff. And so many parents came and said, thank you. Our kids are in university and they come back believing in the Da Vinci Code and what Dan Brown wrote. And you really helped us because how could you ignore such a cultural stream? So preach your expository messages, but don't be so dedicated to it that if things go bad, when 9-11 happened, did you just go to church and say, well, I'm in Nehemiah and I don't see anything here about that. No, we preach to the controlling realities. That doesn't mean that we read the, the newspaper on Saturday to try to preach on Sunday, but don't ignore these issues, which are called political. One other, and that is apologetics. When I was teaching apologetics back in the 1970s, because I studied apologetics and took courses in philosophy, the question then was, is the Bible true? Nobody asked that question today. 
Because truth no longer exists outside of us, it is internal, and again, you can read about that. The question today is, is the Bible uh, repressive? Is it repressive because of its view of slavery? Is it repressive because of its view of women? In other words, your university students will probably not be talked out of their faith, but they may be mocked out of their faith. You believe that book, which is so culturally bound that it uh, does not apply to us moderns, and so deal with some of those issues. And then have your resignation handy in your <laughs> suit pocket. But we can't avoid these issues. Now, I want to give you a big piece of advice here. And you know, uh, my time is almost up. Here's the piece of advice. There are some issues that you probably should not deal with from the pulpit. For example, at Moody Church, 25% of everybody who joined the church when I was there was raised Catholic because Chicago's a very Catholic city. And early on, you know, I preached about why we don't pray to Mary and so forth, and it became such a stumbling block to all of the Catholics. And I thought, you know, that isn't the best way to do it because, after all, nobody goes to hell because they pray to Mary. They go to hell because they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's number one. But number two, how do I answer the question of all of the Catholics that get saved and then say, where did prayers for Mary, to Mary come from? What about, um, what about, why do you have fewer books in the Bible that we do? So what I did is, on a number of occasions, should have done it more often, I had a seminar on a Saturday morning on the history of Catholic theology and answered the questions that Catholics had. I did it that way rather than in a public way, and of course our sermons get broadcast, and so, uh, because you know, when you preach, you can't have give and take, you can't have response, so there are some things you should deal with like that. I think Islam, I preached against Islam, but the real depth teaching of Islam took place in seminars, where we had somebody come in and help us to understand that. All right, yes, there is spiritual warfare, Remember that evil never retreats on its own. It only retreats when it is confronted by a more powerful force. And that powerful force is, of course, the gospel. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Did Luther throw an inkwell at the devil? Well, on about six or eight occasions, I've led tours to the sites of the Reformation in Germany. And uh, I was often in the room in the Wartburg Castle, where he supposedly threw an inkwell at the devil, and tour guides used to rub a little bit of soot on the wall because, you know, you pay so much to go to Germany, you have steps to climb up, everybody wants to see where the inkwell landed. But, you know, I'm not sure that he threw an inkwell at the devil. For one thing, there's no devil that's going to say, Ooh, boy, he almost hit me. <laughs> Luther said in the table talks, I fought the devil with ink. What he meant was, I fought the devil by the translation of the Greek New Testament into a German that Germans could read and understand. If you want to fight the devil, you did do it with the word of God, you do it in prayer, and you do it in that way. Now, 
You know why we don't have prayer meetings anymore in churches? I mean, we do at Moody Church, but why many people don't? I'll tell you exactly why, because we don't believe God answers prayer. Could you imagine how many people would come to your prayer meeting if they actually believed that God answered prayer? Amen. You'd have tons of room. I mean, tons of people come, but we don't because... Now, my time is over, and I'm sorry about that. I'm a minute over, but you know what? God wants you to listen to this quote. I talked about Niemöller and the muzzle decree. The muzzle decree was a decree by Hitler that says, you can preach the pure gospel, Hitler said that. Preach the pure gospel, but don't you dare preach against the Reich. So, Niemöller did not obey that. He was critical of Hitler in his church. And before he went to, oh, I wish I could tell you that story, but you know, they're gonna say Lutzer went overtime, so. <laughs> Here's what he said to his con uh, congregation before he was tried and sent to a concentration camp. We have all of us, the whole church and the whole community, we've been thrown into the tempter's sieve. He is shaking and the wind is blowing and it must now become manifest whether we are wheat or chaff. We must see that the calm, calm, meditative Christianity is at an end. It is now springtime time for the hopeful, expectant Christian church. It's testing time. And God is giving Satan a free hand so that he may shake us up that it may be seen what manner of men we are. Satan swings his sieve and Christianity is thrown hither and thither. And he who is not ready to suffer... He who calls himself a Christian only because he hopes to gain something, he'll be blown away like the chaff in the wind. Augustine said, after Rome was destroyed, whatever men build, men will destroy. So let's get on with the business of building the kingdom of God. Build your church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But don't be afraid of the culture. Things that are called political, you must preach on. Even if you agree with me, and I really do hope you do, that you don't endorse a political candidate or a political party. But the issues are coming so fast. Help your people think them through biblically. Father, we pray that you might use these remarks to encourage pastors if something was said that was incorrect, we only seek your face. We only ask, Lord, that you might glorify yourself in our ministries. And at the end of the day, all that we want is to be faithful and make us courageous in the midst of the culture and help us to prepare our people for a world that has lost its way. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.